here with you this morning. Enjoyed that uh, beautiful song service. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3. The most uh, difficult part of the preparation for this morning was trying to figure out how to divide this up. I mean, it really, the uh, it probably ought to be ch- taken in the full chunk as far as the chapter goes, or even two halves, but there's so much here we would have to skip over a lot if we were to do that. And so um, I want to look at the first eight verses in John chapter 3 this morning, and really I want to back up just a little bit and read John 2.23, uh, just for context, and go in all the way through John 3, uh, verse 8. You know this already, but I'll remind you, these chapter divisions, are they were inserted later. These are not inspired. This is I'm thankful for them. We can all get to John 3.1 fairly quickly since they're there. But the divisions are, are um, were inserted by a man. These aren't inspired. So, John twenty John two twenty three sets up John three, and I want to make sure that we don't miss that. So John chapter two, verse twenty three, concerning Jesus. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And so when we come to this section here in John, what we see is... um, the light shining in the darkness. Um, Jesus will go on in this chapter in verse 19 and say this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men hate the light because they love darkness. And so this is one of those pictures here. It's Jesus' declaration on the human condition. Jesus' declaration on the human condition here. When we were in John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 18 in the prologue, we said that John is, in this first 18 verses of John chapter 1, is he's really thematically planting the seeds that he would spend the rest of the book unpacking. And, and so we see in John chapter 3 that John has already planted the seeds in John 1. Four and five, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Also in verse nine, he was, this is speaking of uh, uh, John the Baptist, he was not that, I'm sorry, verse nine, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so when we come here in John chapter 3, and we really focus on this phrase that Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
By the time we get here, this is old news as far as John is concerned. He's already addressed this reality. And so what he's going to do in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 and John chapter 6 and in several other chapters in John is he's going to take this truth that if, if a man would come to know the Lord, he must be born of God. And he's going to show us what that looks like in real life. He's going to illustrate that for us in several different ways. And if we didn't have this uh, in John chapter 3, it would be very difficult for any of us to come to the conclusions that John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and really through Jesus' commentary here, that John really lays out for us concerning Nicodemus. And so it begins, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, I read John chapter 2, verse 23, just to show you the connection. There were many that believed on Jesus, but we said when we looked at this passage that the fact that Jesus didn't commit himself unto them, it just simply meant he didn't believe their belief. It's the same word, committed and believe. And then it says, He needed not that any should testify of man because he knew what was in the heart of man. And then there came to him a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. We're in one straight thought. Okay, John has given us a principle here that there were some who were moved by and interested in these signs. They believed that he was a miracle worker. We'll see here that Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that has come from God because nobody can do these things unless God sent him. Nicodemus is one of these men that John refers to in chapter 2, 23 through 25. And he comes to Jesus at night. Now, you can do a couple of things with this and I don't know that we can be dogmatic about either one. Number one, you've you've heard that perhaps Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night because he wanted to avoid a public appearance with Jesus. He was a, what we're going to find out here in a minute, he was a an elite in Israel. And he didn't want to come to Jesus saying these things um, in the public eye because of what it might have done. Another reason maybe why it's said this way, or maybe another thing that John is trying to do here, um, is, is setting this scene that as Nicodemus, this man by all earthly standards, uh, who would have had more light than really anyone, right? The law was given to the Jews. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He had been given light. And yet... Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a man who is immersed in darkness. He doesn't even know what he doesn't know. And so when we, as we think about this, these eight verses, I want to think about it in three different, three different points here. Verses one and two, we see the concealing darkness, the concealing darkness. There's a darkness that we're all born into that conceals something. Um, verses 3 through 5 is a revealing light. That's Jesus. He begins to speak into Nicodemus's uh, condition. And then a desperate plight. He begins to tell Nicodemus what must happen and that he shouldn't marvel over these things. So number one, a concealing darkness. A concealing darkness. Uh, we know this, uh, and we'll, we'll look at some passages here in a minute, but we know that every man who's born into this world by nature is born into a fallen world, and when I say a man, I just mean humanity, and every human who is born into this world is born into this world with a sin nature. They are born in darkness, in blindness. And Nicodemus is no different. We want to get a few details or maybe hone in here on a few details that the text gives us about Nicodemus. It says, number one, there was a man of the Pharisees. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. 
Okay, so what we know about Nicodemus first and foremost is that Nicodemus was among the religious elites. There were about 6,000 Pharisees um, in Jerusalem. And so as far as the, the number and population goes, there weren't that many of them. They were, um, they were a sect that, um, the very name Pharisee just means separate one, holy one. It was If you were going to be a Pharisee, then you were an individual who set yourself apart from the rest of the world, uh, even from the rest of God's people, as far as this is concerned. You set yourself apart because you were more serious about your holiness and you were more serious about living and bringing your life under the law of God than anyone else. And so this is what Nicodemus was. He had separated himself under the law of God. A Pharisee's life was a life that was fully devoted to knowing, practicing, and enforcing the law of God. Okay, So you'll remember that the Pharisees had the authority to be able to kick people and banish people out of the synagogue. So they were... They were uh, uh, Knowers of the law, they knew God's word as far as the Old Testament went. They were separate, and so that meant that they were seeking to practice the law, but they were also enforcers. They could uh, they could enforce things upon people. So you would just say you might just say they were zealous. Third, they also developed the oral law or what came to be known as the oral law. Jesus calls these the traditions of men, but it's where the Pharisees began to adapt the law to new situations that maybe weren't around back when the law was um, was written. So for for instance, they had this law on the Sabbath day, you weren't supposed to do be able to do any work. So if you went to a well and um, there was a bucket, but there was no rope tied to the bucket, it was against the the law of God for someone to tie a knot on that rope to attach it to the bucket. But it was not against the law for a woman to tie up her her dress. So technically, a woman could tie her dress to the bucket and it were long enough to get it down into the water and bring it back up. That was lawful. But you better not tie a knot on that rope to the bucket and drop it down because that's not lawful. Make sense? Of course not. Okay, But they came up with this and they enforced it. Why? Because they were separate. They were holy. They thought that what they were doing was um, making the people more pleasing to God. And, and some of the stories on this and the history on this varies, but... Um, but a popular understanding of how the Pharisees even came to being was uh, after after the exiles returned from Babylon and um, the temple was rebuilt and things pretty quickly started to decline, there was a group of people who said, we are not going back into exile. We are not going back. Um, under the uh, the rule and the reign of some pagan nation. And so we are going to make sure that we are holy, that we are walking in God's law, and we're going to even add some things to make sure that even if you violated those, you still hadn't really got to what God has said. So if what God calls holy is holy, right? If what God's law says is good, well, let's come up with something even better. That way we're insulated. So he was a Pharisee. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews. That means that he was part of the Sanhedrin council. So if if a Pharisee made him a religious elite, then the the Sanhedrin made him a political elite. Okay, This would have been like a governmental kind of thing. Uh, it was the highest Jewish council. Uh, so it would be like being a member of our Supreme Court. Um, made up of 71 members. The head of it uh, was the current high priest, whoever that was. And the, the 
point of it was not just to be separate as far as a religious um, uh, a religious angle goes, but even in all of the political dealings of what was happening, they wanted to make sure that what they were enforcing from the top down was going to be in line with God's law. Now, as far as motive goes, that's that's not a bad motive. So what I mean by that is, it's not like as Nicodemus comes to uh, to Jesus that he is... Um, you know, he's an adulterer and he uh, is a thief and and he's a he's a stench to society. That's not what Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is kind of your honorary deacon. And in the political realm, he is leading the charge to help make Jerusalem great again. Right. I mean, he's he's a good guy. He's the guy you'd want to be your neighbor. Part of the Sanhedrin council. But in spite of this very impressive moral, religious, political resume, uh, Nicodemus was in darkness, right? And he was in darkness to the extent that, that he could not see himself and he could not see the world the way that God saw it. Now I want you to think about that. A man who probably had the first five books of Moses memorized, a man who could engage with and access the Old Testament Scriptures way better than anybody here. A man who made sacrifices to make sure that he was separate, even more separate than the common person. But he was blind. He was in darkness. And it's... It's strange to think about what the expressions of those of that darkness was. Nicodemus's commitment to outward holiness concealed the reality of his dead heart. That sounds strange to you. That's what was wrong with all the Pharisees. All the Pharisees thought that they were way better than Jesus. They thought they were way holier than Jesus. And that holiness that they were holding on to, that righteousness, that separateness that they put their confidence in, was a blinder. It didn't. It blinded them. It concealed what was really going on. Secondly, Nicodemus's commitment to know and to enforce the law of God really concealed his inward condition. You know, Nicodemus was a guy who was not comfortable around unholy people. He was a guy who loved what was right. He knew what was right. He was comfortable, comfortable around what was right. And he enforced what was right. And in, with an unregenerate heart, it made it impossible for him to see that everything in his life was right except him. Right? The law was not doing what it was intended to do. It was helping to prop Nicodemus up rather than reveal his need for a savior. His political status, the fact that he was an ultra conservative, concealed this reality. Why? Because he could have come up with a lot of people who were far worse than he was. And he was the guy who was bold. He was willing to say things that most people wouldn't say. Matter of fact, when we get to the next message, you'll find out whenever Jesus says, are you not a teacher in Israel? That really the phrase is, are you not the teacher in Israel? Meaning that probably Nicodemus was the primary or the top teacher among Pharisees there in Israel. And yet he was in darkness. How is that? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and this is what he says. You'll notice in uh, verse 2. Rabbi, that's teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now, first of all, you'll notice Nicodemus doesn't say, Rabbi, I know. Notice the plural, we know. Nicodemus is a representative of somebody. Now, whether or not he's talking about 
him and the other people who have seen these miracles or whether maybe he's a representative of some other people among the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin that have seen these miracles and they're kind of carried away with this miracle worker. I don't know. But he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, this is, this is what he's saying. We know this about you, Jesus. It's impossible that anybody could do what you're doing except he were sent from God. You're, 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 we don't know what all he saw because the, the um, um, verse 23 of chapter 2 says that um, he had done miracles, plural. Uh, we, we only read about one of those. Uh, well, we don't even read about the miracle. We read about the cleansing of the temple, but we know he did some miracles afterwards. We're not exactly sure what those miracles or signs were, but the people who saw those said, okay, there's something to this. Not just any old Joe can do this. Nicodemus comes and says, Jesus, we know it's impossible for anybody to do this except they are sent from God. And then Jesus comes back with a response that makes you think that he's engaged in a completely different conversation. He says, verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes and says, we know it's impossible for a man to do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus' response is, it's impossible for a man to see the kingdom unless he's born of God. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Strange response. What's Jesus doing? Well, really, Jesus is just cutting through all the fluff and he's saying, you think you know, but you really don't know anything, Nicodemus. You come to me as a teacher, and while Jesus was a teacher, he was much more than a teacher. The signs that Jesus were doing were not meant to authenticate the fact that he was merely a teacher. He was the Son of God who knew the Father, and he came down to declare him. So Jesus says, you're blind, Nicodemus. You think you know, but the truth is you cannot know. You think that you're in the upper echelons of the kingdom, but the reality is you can't even see the kingdom. Now, whenever Nicodemus heard kingdom, whenever Jesus was speaking about kingdom here, you must be born again, except you are born again. You cannot see, you cannot enter into the kingdom. They would have been thinking about the Daniel 7, 13 through 14 kingdom. They would have been thinking about the kingdom of God as the, the son of man who has been uh, coronated, who has been enthroned and he's given a kingdom above all kingdoms and he's given a dominion that's above all powers and, and he's ushering in this kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. And no doubt Nicodemus thought that's where he was. Jesus says, well, again, verse 3, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus says two things. Really, these are, I think, synonymous. But number one, as it relates to the kingdom, he says, Nicodemus, unless a man, unless a person be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. I really think he's after Nicodemus's phrase, we know. No, you don't know, Nicodemus, because here's the reality. Now, all this comes after this scenario as far as uh, this encounter with Jesus, but... 1 Corinthians 2.14, you know this passage. The natural man receives not the things of God because they are foolishness unto him because they're spiritually discerned. The natural man, this is what Scripture teaches, we're all born dead. 
We're all born dead to God. We're all born in need of a rebirth. Think about this. When Jesus says you need to be born again, that is implicitly saying there was something wrong with your first birth. Okay, it, There was something wrong with that. There's something deficient with that. You need a rebirth. You need to be born. The word again could also be translated born from above. Okay, That's really what Jesus is saying. You need to be born from above. And unless you are, you cannot see. Now we're familiar. You've been here for a while. We're familiar with the New Testament's teaching on this. But this is not just a New Testament concept. This concept is found throughout the Old Testament as far as having eyes that do not see and and having ears that cannot hear. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting in verse 2, it says, And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh and unto all his servants and unto all his land. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles. Now, now, before we get anywhere else, this is what Moses is saying. You have seen miraculous things. You have seen signs. Very parallel with what we're talking about in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. You've seen all these things, but what's the problem? Verse 4, Yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. This is what Moses says. You've seen a lot. You've seen miraculous signs from the Lord. You saw how He dealt with Pharaoh. How He dealt with their land. You saw in the great temptations, these signs and these miracles. But there was a problem. The Lord had not given you heart to perceive and understand. He had not given you eyes to see. He had not given you ears to hear. Now, I think it's very helpful to make sure that, and it's here, that whenever we're saying eyes to see and ears to hear, that what we're really saying, this heart to perceive, eyes to see, ears to hear, that's all talking about the same thing. That is, you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know what you're listening to. It doesn't mean that you can't see the facts that are on the page. It it doesn't mean that you can't come to Scripture, read it, and cognitively make some sense out of what's going on. But what it means is it has no hold on you. The truth of its content isn't personal. It hasn't found lodging in your heart. It's, it's caused no transformation of the will. Because you don't have a heart that can perceive these kinds of things. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 21. Jeremiah would say the same sort of thing. He says, hear now this. I'm not going to turn there. Hear now this, O foolish people. And without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. Again, it wasn't that they didn't know the information. Jeremiah spent his life preaching to people and they knew what he was saying. They knew it well enough to reject it, right? And why did they reject it rather than accept it? Why does anyone differ in their response to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do some accept and some reject And the fundamental answer to that is, is that some people have eyes to see and have a heart that that can perceive. And some people simply do not. We find that beginning in the Old Testament and working its way all the way through the New. 
Isn't it funny that a man like Nicodemus, who again outranks, outranks us all in, spirit, in, in biblical knowledge, okay? we're nowhere close to what he was, outranks us all in his commitment to holiness. As far as outward holiness, we're nowhere close. He outranks ranks us all as far as his commitment to what he thought anyway the kingdom was as far as Israel. And yet, he really had zero spiritual perception. He had none. Look in John chapter 12 as we see this concept carried. We could go to more places in the Old Testament, but for the sake of time, we'll see how Jesus uh, quotes and applies one of these Old Testament passages in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 37, again, this is another one of those times where he had done miracles and signs. So we're thinking about uh, same sort of thing as John 2, 23, same sort of thing as Deuteronomy 29. Starting in verse 37 of John 12, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now, if any of the other stuff that we read is confusing or maybe unclear, John is crystal clear, almost uncomfortably clear whenever we get to this section in John chapter 12. He says, this is what Isaiah said. So the question is, how is it that a group of people could see what he describes in verse 37 as so many miracles that were done right before their eyes and yet they didn't believe on them? He says, this is not a new thing. And the explanation's not a new explanation. It's the same thing Isaiah was saying whenever he was talking about the arm of the Lord being revealed. That is, taking a people who do not have spiritual eyes and spiritual understanding and giving them enlightenment, allowing them to see something that they are completely blinded to. And he goes so far in verse 40 to say, uh, they, you know, verse 39, they could not believe. Notice it didn't say that they would not or they did not. Okay, This is a matter of ability. They could not believe. Why? Verse 40, he hath blinded their eyes. Now the question is, who's the he in that passage? Well, it's God. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts and be converted and I should heal them. Now again, think about this. How is it that Nicodemus could see these miracles? How is it that Nicodemus could know as much of the Word of God as he knew and yet still be in unbelief about who Jesus was? I mean, he knew what the Messiah was going to come to do. How is it that he could do all those things? Because while he had a human perception as far as understanding what words say, he was blind. He didn't understand what he knew. Now what does God have to do to blind someone? That's always a question. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll go ahead and read that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting in verse 4, uh, verse 3, 
It says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so as Paul talks about that here, he talks about the gospel being hidden because the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of them that believe not. We are we are in, in born into the world system. Now when we're talking about the world system, we're talking about the kind of world, the first John, love not the world, the, the world, the flesh, the devil. We're talking about this fallen world. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not. So what does God have to do in order to blind folks? Well, He just leaves them where they are. Right? God doesn't take belief and turn it into unbelief. God just leaves you in your unbelief. By nature, none of us, according to Romans 3, would ever seek after God. None of us fear God. None of us are interested in God. And so what does God do to conceal? He just leaves people where they are. God's active in shining the light of the gospel through the face of Jesus Christ and bringing people to light and bringing people to life. But as far as this blindness goes... We were born that way. And we remain that way as long as God doesn't intervene. And so Jesus would say, except a man be born again or born from above, John chapter 3, verse 3, or verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So here's another question. What what does he mean here in verse 5 by water and spirit, being born of the water and of spirit? Well, there's a lot of explanations for this. And uh, when I say explanations, I mean a lot of various um, ways that people try to make sense out of this. Um, And I'm not going to go through all the possibilities. I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. Uh, And before I do, I'm just going to say that whenever we're trying to understand, primarily the question is, what does it mean that a man is born of water? When we're trying to understand what that means, we do not simply want to ask, what can we make fit here? You can make a lot of stuff fit there. That's not the question. The question is, does Scripture give us any kind of indication as to what a man who would have been familiar with the Old Testament might have understood this elaboration of verse 3 to mean, because that's what Jesus is doing. First, he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how you crawl back in your mother's womb for another birth. And Jesus says, no, 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 Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. And I would say that Ezekiel, I'm sorry, that Nicodemus's mind and Jesus's mind were both in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now we can go to other places like Isaiah 44, but let's go to Ezekiel 36. And there's a reason why I'm saying this as far as Ezekiel goes. Um, because I think in this passage, Jesus is thinking about Ezekiel 36 and 37 when he gets to his illustration in verse 8. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, this is, you'll remember Ezekiel is prophesying during the exile, during the Babylonian exile. And he is, in this passage, he's talking about God um, bringing His people back and about uh, his and about the Lord blessing His people to be a people again, and this is what He says, starting in verse twenty-five. Um, 
Well, verse 24, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. And then verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. I just want to stop there. This is the passage that we go to that really um, uh, anyone with some biblical uh, familiarity is going to go to when they're thinking about regeneration being spoken of in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is saying on behalf of God, I'm going to take you out of this foreign land, but then I'm going to do something to make sure you don't get sent back. And it's not, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a thousand more laws to keep. It's not, I'm going to give you an oral law that will give you a bunch of checks and balances to make sure. He says, I'm going to give you my spirit. Another way that he says that is, I'm going to give you a new heart. Another way that he says that is, I'm going to sprinkle clean water upon you and cleanse you. Okay, all of that in that passage is talking about the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. See, he's, he says, I'm, it's not that you're going to be, um, you're going to be motivated to keep the law because you're afraid of what might happen if you don't. It's that I'm going to give you a heart and you're going to love me. And you're going to walk in my way because you love me. And I'm going to sprinkle you and cleanse you because you're going to walk away and turn away and repent of that sin because you love me, not because of anything else. We see the same illustration as far as the Spirit being illustrated by water in Isaiah 44. So look in Isaiah 44. Verses 3 and 4. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offering. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. So he says, I'm going to pour water. And then he goes on to say what he's talking about here is he will pour his spirit out upon the people. Um, Jesus would pick up on this illustration in John chapter 7 when he says that those who drink of the living water out of their bellies will flow. Um, um, uh, life, or I can't remember now the phrase that he uses, but he goes on to say that he was speaking of the Spirit, okay? the Holy Spirit, as far as that metaphor goes. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 talks about regeneration as being a washing. Okay, so this is a, this is something that we find, um, biblically speaking, that the Spirit and water are used in combination several times throughout Scripture. So what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus when he says you must be born again or born from above or born by water and the Spirit, he's saying all the same thing. He's saying you need a new heart. You need the Spirit of God to bring you from death to life. And again, he's saying this to a man that if he were here, we would all be very impressed with. Okay, he's in darkness. He has no idea he needs any of this because he's got all the right answers and he does all the right things. And if you were to compare him to everyone else, He's an elite. And he says, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And so the light shines in. Now again, sometimes we, we take these kinds of passages and we let our systematic theology determine how we're going to preach the passage. I think that's backwards. I think we ought to be thinking about regeneration, but we ought to be thinking about regeneration in light of Nicodemus and what's happening here. Can you imagine how surprised he must have been when Jesus is saying all this? I mean, here's this guy who's an elite among the elites. 
And in his mind, you have to think that as he approaches Jesus, he's doing Jesus a favor. He's almost saying, I'm your ticket into the in crowd. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're nowhere close to the crowd. You're still outside of the kingdom. And so Nicodemus is still kind of perplexed by this. And Jesus goes on in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So we have here this reality that not only for Nicodemus, but for us too, we're a, we're a, we're, we find ourselves in a desperate plight, a desperate condition in and of ourselves. He says that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. Look in, look in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 5. It says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, that is, it is at war with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be, so then they that are in the flesh. Now the word flesh there, just it's talking about our fallen nature, your, your, your inherent sinful nature. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so again, when Jesus says, marvel not, okay, that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. Marvel not at this, Nicodemus. What he's saying here is, you can dress the flesh up as much as you want, but we cannot, now we're back here in Romans, we cannot please God by bringing him anything in the flesh. Someone says, well, what if we memorized a lot of Scripture? No, it's not pleasing to God. Not if it's in the flesh. Well, what if we cleaned up our act? And what if we were good citizens? And what if we came to church every Sunday? And what if we... And you could throw it all out there. And the the answer is, if all of that is done in the flesh, it's not pleasing to God. Proverbs tells us that The plowing of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. We use this very often when we try to illustrate this point, but the plowing of the wicked just simply means a man goes out and works his field so that he can feed his family. The act in and of itself is good, but he's doing it in the flesh, and he says this is an abomination to God. So that which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. And what we know from Ephesians chapter 2 is that in our flesh, we are spiritually dead. Okay. We, we, it's not that we will not respond, it's that we cannot respond. It's not until God in His mercy makes us alive through grace and seats us and unites us with Christ that we can do anything that is pleasing to Him because we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You must be born again. You must have the Spirit of God living in you. Now notice again, we want to highlight this and make sure we're emphasizing this. The phrase here is not it would be good if you were born again. It's not it would be helpful if you were born again. It's that you must. If you would come to know the Lord, you must be born again. Jesus says you cannot. We're talking about ability here. You cannot see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom. 
Jesus would say in John 6.44, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. We're talking about impossibilities here. We're helpless until the Spirit intervenes. We're helpless until the Spirit gives life. And then he gives this illustration in John, and we'll wrap it up here. Illustration in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, that is, it just blows where it wills, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, it's possible, maybe even likely, that this illust- when Jesus gives this illustration, He's thinking about Ezekiel 37. Remember the, the, the valley of dry bones? It comes right after Ezekiel 36, where we were talking about earlier. And, and, and when He's telling Ezekiel to prophesy, He's saying, prophesy to the wind, prophesy to the wind. And as He's prophesying, breath is coming into these dry bones and these people are made are brought from death to life. And it's, uh, again, if you go there and you read verses uh, 1 through 14, you'll see it's an obvious uh, picture of the Spirit regenerating these people, giving these people life. And so he's using the wind, and he makes this observation. Number one, as far as the wind goes, you cannot control the wind, right? It goes where it wants. You cannot see the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. But you can see the effects of the wind. Okay, You you, you can't control it. You can't see it. But you can hear it. You can see what happens or what it's doing. And so the Spirit of God is the same way. And so when we're thinking about what it means to be born again or what it means to be regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, regeneration is an invisible and sovereign work of the Spirit. We don't know where the Spirit's coming from and we don't know where He's going as far as we're concerned in our midst. Uh, We can't control what the Spirit's doing, just like we can't control the wind. But we know this. We know that whenever the Spirit works, the effects are visible. And Jesus is going to go on in John chapter 3 uh, to, um, uh, to imply this and really to directly teach it. And so what the Spirit does is under the Spirit's sovereign and divine prerogative. It's not so simple as just praying a little prayer. Okay? A prayer in and of itself has never saved anyone. Now, the Spirit teaches our heart to pray, right? And He opens our eyes to our desperate condition, and then He opens our eyes to the fact that our only hope is in Christ, and so we are moved to pray based on that. But a prayer in and of itself never did that. A message, the preaching of the Word, that's never regenerated anyone. If it were going to regenerate someone, wouldn't you think a guy like Nicodemus would be it? I mean, he was saturated in the Word, and yet he was in darkness. It was this, it's the Spirit of God who sovereignly brings someone who is dead to life. And then what we find is that while we cannot see that happening, we do see the effects. And we'll, I'll give you two, and these are the two that really uh, John will uh, uh, hammer throughout his gospel. In John chapter 16, verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Is it expedient for you that I go away? For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now the Comforter, there's the Spirit. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The word reprove there just means convict. You can't see. We don't get a front row seat to when people are regenerate. You could be looking at somebody while the Spirit regenerates them and not know what was happening. It's an invisible work. But the fruit is very visible. 
Jesus says whenever the Spirit comes, whenever the Comforter comes, what He's going to do is He is going to convict the world of sin. You find someone who is convicted over their sin. Now, we've talked about this before. Guilt in and of itself is not a 100% foolproof indication. But what the Spirit decides to do with that guilt and where that guilt drives the individual is going to be the proof in the pudding. Okay, Where the Spirit begins to work, we see guilt over sin. We find someone who realizes, I am undone before God. Nicodemus doesn't think this. Nicodemus is probably patting himself on the back by saying, I'm the, I'm the one who was brave enough to come say what a lot of these other guys are thinking. Secondly, John chapter 15, verse 26 But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. What's the effect of the Spirit? You know, there are some people that think that the effects of the Spirit are some sort of a silly excitement. You think about the charismatic movement. They've just done tragic, tragic things with what you're looking for whenever you're looking for the effects of the Holy Spirit. Two things will always occur when the Spirit regenerates a person. Always. Number one, conviction over sin. Number two, they will be, they will be drawn to Jesus Christ. The Spirit testifies of Christ. And He uses the law of God as a schoolmaster to produce that guilt and to drive us to Jesus Christ. And where Jesus is going in John chapter 3 is that just as the serpent was lifted up by Moses and the people looked and they found relief, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and all who look upon Him and believe will be saved. He starts out with regeneration, but He makes a beeline to what the Spirit does with that. And so... We see just in the opening of this narrative that Jesus knew the heart of man. He knew what was in man. He did not entrust Himself to Him. And exhibit A is Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a man who knew all there was to know about God and at the same time had no idea who God was. Why? Because you must be born again. You must be born again. To come to see your guilt, to come to see your need, and then to come to see that God has made provision in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, if you've come to see that this morning, And praise God for the sovereign work of the Spirit. Praise God for His grace and mercy in your life. But maybe, maybe you find yourself a lot more like Nicodemus. Someone who knows a whole lot about God, but you're not very sure you actually know God. What do you do then? Well, if you've been convicted, then the prayer is that that conviction would drive you to Christ. And that God and His mercy would open your eyes and open your heart. You see, we really only have a couple, of, a couple of scenarios here, a couple of ways to respond. Sometimes people hear a message like this and they, they come to the conclusion, well, my goodness, if you've got to be born again and we're dependent on the Spirit, then I can't do anything. Well, that, that is true. But you realize pleading for mercy is your way of saying I can't do anything. You realize mercy is pity. Lord, would you take pity on me? I'm pitiful. I'm helpless. I can't do anything. And so, we'll look at this more next week. But the answer for a man who's blinded by his self-righteousness is the same answer for a woman like the woman at the well in chapter 4 who's just lived a, a grossly sinful life. It's look to Christ. Beg for mercy and seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We said it at the beginning. We would have never come to these kinds of conclusions 
were you not to have revealed these things to us. And so we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him from heaven to declare you to us. And then, Father, we do pray that you would bless us as we consider the case of Nicodemus, that we would consider our own hearts, that we would consider our own lives, not so that we can somehow wallow around in um, uncertainty, not so that we can somehow wallow around in self-guilt, but Lord, would you bless us to consider Consider the fact that we're satisfied with our knowledge, with our lives, with our status, rather than satisfied with your son and what he's done on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would bring those to faith who do not yet know you. And we pray that those of us who do know you, that you would deepen our faith and deepen our walk with you. And that we would hope in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's in His name we pray. Amen.